but so one of my colleagues painted this picture and it's a it's a black canvas and then they, and he threw some red paint on it and he calls it the gunshot and what does that mean well that was the that was the wish not only of 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 myself and some others but really traumatic brain injury victims that you know we wish we had been shot because that would have been a a, a visible physical injury that you could then people would believe you and you could heal from but with a tbi it's much different Welcome back to the live drop. My name is Mark Fowley, and your guest for this episode is Mark Polymeropoulos, a former senior intelligence officer at CIA. We talk about his book, Clarity and Crisis Leadership Lessons from the CIA. Mark is uh, retired in June of 2019 from the senior intelligence service ranks at CIA after a 26 year career in operational headquarters and field management assignments covering the Middle East, Europe, Eurasia, counterterrorism. He served in both Iraq. In Afghanistan is one of the CIA's most decorated field officers. Um, you know, we had a very uh, frank, informative, humble conversation with a very accomplished and experienced um, member of the CIA senior service. And uh, Mark also talks about his traumatic brain injury that he suffered in Moscow in 2017. He talks about the initial symptoms, um, some of the difficulties he had in getting treatment. He talks about what to do if you feel like you are the victim of a directed energy attack as well. Begin transmission now. Mark, can you hear me? Hey, how's it going? Good. I just started recording, if that's all right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We don't have to start right now, but... Oh, it's fine. So, yeah, I've been sitting here waiting for you uh, in the Vienna Inn. I don't know if you recognize the background behind me. What are you doing there? (laughs) No, no, I just just did the... uh, you know, you do the fake screen on your back. Holy cow. What the heck? Oh, that's right. <laughs> Wait, that's, no one's moving behind you. That's no, right. I know. I, know. I, think that's, I think that's Colfer Black sitting behind me in the... That's, you know, that's so funny. In this shirt right there. <laughs> I don't know who's with him. Might be... Maybe it's John Cipher. I don't know. I, don't know. I love it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'll send it that's to you. Awesome. you what, that, what a great background photo. I love I'll it. I'll send you. You can use it for yours. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I started looking into that place. I looked at the menu. I thought, well, this is... Uh, yeah, this is definitely a dive bar, you know? But they have this... Uh, I think it was a steak and mushroom and provolone sandwich. Okay. I, 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 I'm not, a, look, I get chicken wings there, French fries, um, chili cheese dogs. And then they have uh, some, uh, some chili Mac, where it's just like, you know, uh, kind of chili over pasta. That's it. Simple. And Vienna lager beer. Yeah. And that's what that, I mean, I, I don't, you know, actually the crazy thing about the Vienna Inn, for whatever reason, they have great grilled shrimp. It makes no sense. Yeah. Where do they get it? And you think like you might die from it, but it's good. So I, I went in there the other day. Marty, the owner, told me that because of the book, and I've mentioned it so much in the book that they've been getting more business. So he's very happy. Oh, that's good. <laughs> um, I did. I was looking. I was also looking at some other pictures. I mean, I didn't spend too much time doing this, either, but I looked. At, I was trying to find your your hat, and there is one glass case right next to the bathroom door. Is that's that it. is that your that's my hat? Yep. <laughs> okay, that's one. That's the one. Yeah, yep, yeah. Marty, Marty, uh, we, we put it up there. It was uh, that's the hat I wore uh, for a year between 2011 and 2012. When I was a base chief in uh, in Eastern Afghanistan, in Paktika province. Yeah, so it was funny. Make sure the glass is sealed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm surprised no one's stolen it. I was convinced someone was going to steal that thing. It sort of seems like one of those, there was this bar in when I was stationed in Berlin, like in the late 80s, and there was this bar in East Berlin called the Ganymed. I mean, if you went went there, you know, you'd have like permission to go and so forth. But if you went there, there was there were Russians, there were Americans, there were East Germans. It was sort of like... Uh, um, it was sort of like the bar in in, in Star Star Wars. It's awesome, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Where it was it was neutral ground. The, the first TDY I ever took as an agency officer in 1990, 
94, maybe. I joined in 93, um, was the Zagreb. Okay. You know, Mark Kelton was the COS there. Okay. And I, I, we stayed at the Zagreb Intercon. And that was like a Star Wars bar because, you know, people from all over the, in the Muslim world, as, as well as there was like Black American Muslims too, all going to fight in, in, in the Balkan conflict, you know, and it was like a Star Wars bar of people. Yeah. It was crazy. And so I just, I, I love, I, I love places like that. I mean, that's what, that's what we do. I mean, come on. That's, that's so fun. Yeah. You're a Mark. <clears throat> we do have the same name. Actually, you're Mark, a Mark with a K. You're Mark with a C. <laughs> and I have to admit, Mark with a, Mark with a C guys, they usually like, they usually played the guitar. They usually um, spoke another language. They usually knew like what type of wine to pick. But Mark with a C's could always, uh, they could stab you in the neck with a pen if, if they had to. <laughs> that's, so that's where, I, that's where I fall with Mark with a C. That's you know, all right. Go for that right away. So, so there we are. You're Mark with a C, but you know, no judge. I'm just going to put that away. But anyway, um, yeah, I did enjoy your book. Oh, I wanted to say okay. something else though, because somebody had given me a tip, and I, I was I wasn't like an intelligence person while I was in the service. But um, a friend a friend of mine that that I know was, and he said, yeah, I said I want to do an introduction before my before my podcast, so I, I don't want to have a long rambling talk, kind of like we're doing right now, or I, at least I am. But I wanted to really get to the point and say why I wanted why I wanted to do this episode, sure. who I'm talking to, and so forth. And I called it the Mad Minute. He just yeah. said. So I'm just wondering what your use of the mad minute is. Well, of course, like the mad minute is in an operational act where, you know, you jump in the car with an agent or, you know, any, any kind of brief. So you got to get the most important things out right away. That's it. Well, that's it. That's kind of because the, the meeting can be interrupted. So it, it, the number one, the first thing is your recontact. That's the first thing you do. Ironically, you know, it's, it's not obtaining the intelligence. It's okay. We're meeting right now. Next meeting is going to be X, Y, Z. And, you know, here's the backup or even the backup plan just to make sure you're, because you never want to lose contact with someone, but but in essence, what the mad minute really means just the most important thing: get get the most important stuff done in sixty seconds. All right, and that's why I put that stuff in the book. It's a little bit different, but in the book at the end of each chapter is, hey, if you're going to take sixty seconds to think about this chapter, just you know, just think about these principles and move on. Yeah. Um, but it's you know that for us was always you know the absolute kind of critical parts of an ops meeting. Yeah, when are you going to meet next? Yeah, so my mad minute should start off with like the next episode, not this episode. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to enjoy this episode, but the next one's even better. You know, yeah. I'll see you there. Yeah. So um, I enjoy, I enjoyed your book. Um, Thank you. Really sort of un- unconventional and kind of a different look at, at the, at the different roles. It was, you know, kind of a fresh glimpse at all these, the, the glue guy, the process monkey adversity There's a drug humility, best served warm. I want to get back to that. Um, win an Oscar family values, be a people developer, which I thought was fat, was interesting. Um, play the dagger clarity in the shadows. I just want to know were these kind of little, you know, cards you carried around in your pocket while you were serving or did you did you kind of gather these as you went along or when or did they kind of just tumble out when you finally sat down to articulate it? So yeah, it's a, it's what a what a great question. And so so really, you know, at the beginning of my career, uh, uh you know, obviously I was a case officer. And then when I first got my first couple of management jobs, I had leadership positions, I was a crappy leader. So only at the end of my career, literally at the very end, I was like, actually I, I'm finally as I'm going to retire, I'm actually a really good leader now. But I was trying to figure out why. And, and it was because I had this ability to be calm and lead in times of crisis when there was a lack of situational awareness, when there was you know, huge ambiguity. And then I kind of dissected why. And so I, that's when I came up with all these principles. Um, certainly not something that I did my whole career, in fact. And, and I think that you know one of the parts about the book is I'm pretty humble in it saying that I failed a lot. But at the end of my career, I was really good at it. And I tried to just dissect it. And that's how I came up with, with these principles that I, that I was doing over time, some of them I didn't realize it, 
Um, but certainly when I put it all together in the end, uh, I, I realized I had something. Yeah, you definitely um, talk about your your failures, which I thought was was refreshing to hear about. I mean, they're obviously learning experiences too. But um, I mean, in that sort of climate in the agency, can you just sort of talk about your failures? I mean, sure. it's, at least for where I'm where I'm coming from, you, you don't really talk about your failures. You you sort of let them go, and then you you hit on your your positive points. Well, look, I mean, look, the intelligence business, particularly on the operational side is, you know, is, is when you try to recruit agents, that's, you know, when you're going about the de- development of spies, you know, these are people obviously who are from other countries and, you know, sometimes hostile nations. Um, so you have to meet a lot of them. So you have to, you know, what we call overturning rocks. So, so, you know, as you, as you try to find those who you think are susceptible for recruitment, um, and certainly not everybody was, it wasn't my wily ways as a case officer that, that I convinced people to become spies, they had some vulnerabilities we had to kind of assess and find out. And then you manipulate a little bit, but, but ultimately it's, you know, it's like, it's like baseball, you know, if you hit 300 in baseball, you know, you're an all-star. So, so, you know, seven out of 10 times you're going to fail. And so just, just kind of that, um, but, but you don't even necessarily even think of it that way. You just, it's just, it's just working hard mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, how the agency deals with this. I mean, espionage is a, is a tough business. It's interesting. There's a lot of stuff in the press over the last several days about the agency, uh, you know, losing, uh, you know, losing assets over the last couple of years. Um, and it's, it's bad. And there's no doubt there's different challenges now with technology. But make no mistake, and people who really know the business realize that, that you know, that this does happen, that, you know, that really bad things happen sometimes. So, so it, you know, it's a business where, where one does um, encounter failure because it's just, you know, it's high risk, high reward. Um, you do everything possible to mitigate that, but ultimately, it's the kind of business where you know you have to be able to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't you don't deal with failure; it's failing, so you're not giving up. Right. Um, but it's learning, you know, uh, based on kind of adversity and, and a lot of tough times. And and I always contend that until you go through those tough times, you're never going to be a good leader. Yeah, I guess when the stakes are higher, mistakes become failures. Yeah. Right. Right. That's right. I was, re- I was reading that New York Times article, and it was talking about it just had a one paragraph about that 2015. I think it was a Chinese guy that was giving some information, but they thought that there was information that had been given on the Covcom system, I guess it's called, which is a system that people communicate with. Yeah, that was, I just thought to myself, God, that was six years ago. And that was kind of a big deal. It seems like everybody has sort of moved on, you know, like we, you, you adapted and you figure out different ways, but this recent revelation, I think it was a, it was a message that was put out. I think it was an internal memo. What wasn't it? And it, it, it listed some, I mean, listed the numbers of people that that were lost, and I think that was supposed to grab some attention. But I think you know the, the idea behind this is, you know, first of all, none of that's new. Everybody in the building knows that, right? Um, the press knows it too. That's been reported already. The internal message, which by the way went to the entire workforce, so it's not that, that sensitive, right? I mean, really sensitive stuff doesn't go to tens of thousands of people um, because what happens is they leak it to the press. But but ultimately, uh, uh, it's just it's just telling us, hey, tighten up, yeah get your crap together. And that's a real, that's a really good message. That's the right message to have. And yeah. particularly when, you know, you know, when we're shifting towards, they changed the name of it, near peer competition, great power competition. I think the administration now trade changed it to strategic competition, which means China, Russia, Iran, but really China, Russia, these are, these are uh, intelligence services, which have, you know, excellent counterintelligence functions. And so we got to be on our game. And so it's a good message. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I see nothing wrong with that. I mean, people want to make this huge deal about it. I mean, someone, and the press said to me, well, the end of human. That drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, we're always going to have to have a human spy. There's nothing that a technical penetration can tell us that's that's better than someone sitting next to Vladimir Putin or the Chinese premier. Right. I mean, you know, that and so, so, you know, it's, there's not, the, but it's harder, no doubt. Technology, um, smart cities, 
biometrics makes things harder, but I always contend the CIA will always be able to meet our agents, period. Um, And so, you know, there's always a lot of drama and sensationalism, but um, I think you want people like me saying, yeah, we'll get this right. Is it, I mean, is it possible, I mean, you know, you don't have to say this is a little trade crafty, but is it possible just to go completely analog these days? I mean, just straight up dead drops and chalk marks and stuff like that. I mean, hundred percent. So, you know, that's, that's, you know, someone said, Hey, so, okay, we'll go to Moscow rules. Or Beijing rules. I mean, you know, now you now it's harder. It takes a lot longer. Um, but again, it's the you know it, I, I've never been in any place had any type any you know any situation where we had to meet someone even in a denied area where we said we can't do that. We will find a way. You also tweeted something about this new mission center. I think yeah. for China. Could you talk China. about that and what that means? Yeah. That's a good idea. Um, so I think you know ultimately you know China is is you know the, the greatest strategic threat to the United States. I think that it's what's really interesting is that. You know, that's actually a bipartisan consensus now, both both from Republicans and Democrats. So Trump administration really charged, you know, started the push against China. Biden administration has has taken up that mantra and and they're both right. So it's a reflection that China is our greatest strategic adversary and we have to put the right amount of people and resources towards it. Um, you know, for my old world and the operation side, you know, look, you know, there, I, I go talk, talk to colleges all the time. And so some a college kid asked me, I want to join the CIA. What should I do? What class should I take? What should I study? What should I major? And I'm like, I don't care. Study Chinese, learn Chinese. You know, if you're, a, and that's what we need our operations officers to be able to do. So it's the right push. Um, I think it's a reflection of uh, of the right priorities. And uh, you know, the agency is an aircraft carrier. It took us a while, but we've moved it, and it's going in the right direction. God, you know, I'm not like I said, I'm not an intelligence collector, but. If I was, you know, there's some interesting apps out there where you can learn languages from people all over the world. Right, right, <laughs> you know? sure. You know, and yeah, you can just no, sort I mean, of pick and choose and find who you want to study, who you want to study Chinese from. And, it- and look, I do, I, I do a lot of kind of guest lectures and teaching at universities, you know, who have really good intelligence programs and stuff like that. But it's still, my contention is, you know, if you want to get into the intelligence business and got on the operational side, you got to have a couple of things. One is you got to have, you know, have an interest in foreign cultures and languages. Uh, ability to learn them, and then just have that kind of wanderlust. You live overseas, but but I tell you, if you graduate from school with you know with a proficient of Chinese, your application's going on the that, that application going on the top of the pile. Right, <laughs> you join the IC. Yeah, uh, you might have had a, you might have gotten a D in econ, you know, uh, and graduated with a two six. But if you speak proficient Chinese, agency is going to say, "I want that person." So that's my two cents. Yeah, it's a difficult language. It's got all those different intonations and stuff. Do you speak any Chinese? No, I was a, I was a Middle East ops person, so I, I learned Arabic. I thought uh, it was pretty interesting because you talk about you know you feel most comfortable finding clarity in the shadows. You know, that's right. where you like leading in intense moments and in moments of chaos and so forth. But um, what about the librarian? Yeah, yeah. So I you know I had this crazy world that I lived in where everyone you know there's these type A male and female officers with huge egos. You know we're at the tip of the spear. And so when I wrote the book, one of my friends who's not from the agency said, Hey, you know, you better make this relatable. And I said, I will, I got it, got it. Not really paying attention. And he came up the line. He said, you better make it. So a librarian reads this. And I was like, that's a great line. Yeah. And so, because, because ultimately, you know, and I, I, I'm a great storyteller. There's great stories in the book. The agency was very generous and, and, you know, in sanitizing some stuff, but allowing me to tell some great stories that, that really kind of uh, are important in showing the principles. But ultimately these principles, I think can be used in any walk of life. And that's the whole point. And, and I knew I nailed this when, uh, you know, I live in, in Northern Virginia. So, the, you know, Fairfax County public school system called me up and said, would you come talk to some of our teachers? And I was like, wow, this is what I wanted. Right. And I sat there for two hours with them just around a table of 10 teachers and administrators and others. And they each had a copy of the book. And we went over all the principles and it, it was it's interactive. It's a training tool. And they loved it. 
And so, you know, they're not charging up a hill. <laughs> they're not in Damascus or Baghdad or Kabul. But you know what? They have huge challenges. And what did they respond? What did they respond to most mostly? Well, the glue guy principle or the glue gal principle is one that that I think is the most universal. So, mm-hmm. um, and that's the idea that there is an indispensable in every unit. There's an indispensable. There are indispensable um, behind the scenes personnel. You know, not ne- not necessarily your door kickers, not necessarily your teachers if you're in, if you're in the school, um, but who are critical to the to the functioning of the team. And so I said, okay, who would it be? And someone raised their hand and said, the IT, he's an IT guy. It was the IT people. Well, that's exact, exactly right. You know, in my old world, it'd be the comms folks or logistics folks or support personnel. But guess what? You know, the, the teachers can't teach if the IT system's not working. Right. Uh, and so when I, what I talked about with them and what I talk about in the book is you got to do two things with the, your glue guys and glue gals. Is one, the success of a unit, you have to celebrate them because, they're, you know, again, they're not the teachers, the award-winning teachers. They're not the door kickers in the Navy SEAL platoon, but they're absolutely critical. So celebrate them. But just as important, you have to include them in your planning sessions. So again, it made a ton of sense as the teachers are planning for the next you know, semester, next year, whatever. Um, you know, the IT folks are absolutely critical. You know, we got to get that right or we can't teach in the classroom. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing where I knew that I nailed this. That's the the librarians will get it model. Yeah. Uh, I didn't go to get my MBA at Harvard. I don't have an MBA. You know, and leadership training in CI is a little sketchy. So this is all just kind of basic stuff that I learned on the streets of the third world, but it turns out it's really applicable. And so my little uh, session with the teachers, I knew it's the same thing just as a, you know, a librarian would get it. So let's jump into something else. You know, one of the things that really struck me was be a people developer. And I, I think a lot of people don't really think about that. I mean, you're at, a, you know, at a young age, you're trying to make your career, you're sort of, you know, then you get to like middle age and you still want to still be viable and vital, you know? So there's, the, it feels like there's a lot of you know, pressure to be constantly performing and to renewing yourself and putting yourself up front and selling yourself. But um, I thought it was refreshing that you had this this idea that you always need to be a, a people developer. Is that something that you you were you were taught, or did you just kind of figure that out? No, you you really figure it out. And and, I, and this is such a great journey. This this is this is one of my favorite you know personal journeys I had. And so so what happens when you are you know you start off in your career? For example, I was I was an operations officer, so my job is to spot assess. Um, develop, you know, recruit and handle agents. I was, that's, you know, and, and a lot of it is, you know, is it's kind of an individual uh, effort. Uh, and if you, you, know, you become good at it, and that means you're actually gaining people's trust or spying to the United States, then you get into leadership positions. And as that junior leader, you still have that kind of competitive fire against, you know, with or kind of against your teammates. And your first couple of leadership positions, here's what you don't understand is that it's not about you. And only when you get to be more senior, a couple of things happen. One is you have really big units. But then, you know, you, then, then you really learn to supplant your ego and you realize that, that your bosses actually don't care about you. They care about the output of your unit and the output of your unit is going to depend on the people. So I had this transformation where all of a sudden it wasn't about me and all the great individual successes. It's I have to develop this team that's going to succeed together. And, and you kind of supplant your ego. And it's, it's, a, it's really it's this kind of incredible journey, this cathartic experience. And one of the things that I, that I really enjoyed, and this made sense, is we have these incredible new people coming into the organization. You know, I retired. I was the head of clandestine operations in Europe, Eurasia. I had, I had a thousand plus people working for me. From from Dublin to Vladivostok. That's right. But I, and, but I would look around, I'd be like, you know, wow, all these people are actually smarter than me. And that's good. And, you know, what an amazing state. You would never say that in the beginning of your career. That would be a threat to you. At the end of your career, like, wow, I have surrounded myself by really smart people. They are smarter than me. I'm going to harness their talents. And then the organization is going to, going to succeed. And so that's, that was this kind of the journey for me. Now, when you put it in, in light of what I'm talking about here, leading during times of crisis, it's even more so. So when I've given people these opportunities to develop, I've mentored them along the way. 
when you have a crisis situation, what happens? Everything's foggy. You know, communications go down. People are high stress. But if you know foundationally you've built this team and you've developed them as, as leaders with, with the right kind of skill set, you're going to have that confidence that even with, you know, that you got people behind you. And so, you know, I, I love that principle. I think it's really important. I, I, I practiced it. I, I'll tell you one war story. And it's from the book on this is that I was in Afghanistan as a base chief. And that means I was responsible. I, you know, I was in Pektika province in Afghanistan. So I was responsible for that province and the surrounding areas. But, but every once in a while, I'd, I'd have to travel to a different area of the country. I was still in charge. You never relinquish that title as chief of base, but maybe I had to go to Kabul for a meeting or, you know, the capital or just several hours away. I would, and, and I had a whole bunch of operations officers under me. So each time I left for a week, for, for two or three days, I would tell one of them, you are now the acting chief and everything you, you know, you're running the base. Now we, this is a place we're under fire every day. We're under, you know, we're getting rocketed by Al Qaeda. We, there was crazy situations where you had to make decisions every day. And I remember jumping on a helicopter in the middle of the night, and leaving, and one of the officers, I said, all right, you're in charge. And he looked at me, he said, all right, chief, hey, I'm going to hold down the fort. And I grabbed him. This is not a leadership principle, I will tell you right now. I grabbed him by his shirt, and I looked him right in the eye, and his eyes bugged out. And I said, this base is yours now. When I come back, you know, we're not, we're not skipping a beat. I don't want to go over the things I have to do. And he goes, got it. Now, what's cool was when I did a book signing, the book came out June 8th of this year. That same officer came to my book signing. And he didn't tell me this, but he told my son, who's in college, he said, your dad was the greatest leader I ever encountered. And I said, and my son, of course, is a wise ass and said, you know, like, oh yeah, really? Wait, whatever. And smiling. And he goes, no, really? Because he taught me, you know, he gave me the confidence. He gave me these opportunities. And by the way, I, I now, and he's gone on to be a station chief, leadership positions overseas. And he says, I now employ a whole bunch of the things he taught me. So my, when my son told me that that night, I was like, wow, because, you know, I can go down to my basement, you know, I have a whole bunch of fancy metals and all sorts of great pictures. I'll go down and have a scotch, you know, and you know what? Nobody cares about that. Mm-hmm. I care about it, you know, as I'm thinking about the glory. But nobody's going to remember Mark Polymopoulos for the operations I ran. Mark Polymopoulos is going to be remembered. My legacy will be that I developed leaders like this, this individual we're talking about. And that is so much more important. You know, I, I, I help pass the torch to the next generation. And that, that be a people de- developer principle. I love that because at the end of your career, that's what you want to be remembered as. I, I, I successfully passed the torch. And, and I'll tell you right now, I talk about a guy in the book named Charlie. His full name was Charlie Seidel. He was a tremendous leader. He was one of my, you know, certainly my mentor. The current operations chief for the CIA, essentially the number three officer, and every senior leadership member probably in, in the nearest division all were mentored by this one individual. That's the impact that he had. And so that's what I'm talking about. Pass the torch and you'll do more for the organization than any of your kind of individual heroics. And I'll still go down and have a scotch and kind of think about all the great things I did and look at my dusty old medals. But I'd rather be remembered as, you know, as, you know, being a people developer for sure. Yeah, or just know that a, a ribbon of your DNA is still kind of running through the whole the whole system, right? That's right. So you talk about um, your mentor. Do you remember a situation where you were given a lot of responsibility at an early at an early point? I do. Actually, I, this is uh, you just you kind of that, this is good because we're, we're going to diverge from the book a little bit too, and not something yeah. I haven't talked about. I was given the the responsibility to what we call handle a really really high priority case early on in my career. Um, and, you know, this is one of those, you know, it's an agent, you know, we had recruited, I was going to handle them just as important or even more so than recruiting because I'm trying to obtain the, you know, intelligence that's needed. And this individual was a goldmine of information. And, and CIA is really smart at doing this. So interestingly enough, junior officers sometimes are chosen to handle the most sensitive cases for a couple of reasons. One is that we're clean. Nobody knows, you know, by the end of your career, a lot of times you've been declared to other, other, you know, intelligence services. So, you know, you're really not running, you know, clandestine operations anymore. You're managing them. 
So, so number one, I was clean, but number two, I just came out of training. So I was sharp and I was fresh. And, and so that's, you know, one of the traditions of CIA is junior officers get actually get to do some of the kind of the sexiest stuff. And, uh, and I'll tell you one thing that, you know, <laughs> I remember one senior officer looked at me and after I was, you know, briefed in on this thing and he, he basically looked at me as, as words of advice were, don't F this up. <laughs> so you can give junior officers, junior employees, a lot of responsibility. And one thing about CIA, which is unique, is that, you know, when we handle an agent, you know, their life is in our hands. And that is an extraordinary responsibility. I, I talk about it in the book, uh, you know, it, it's pretty profound. It's almost you have this, you know, it's almost a marriage you have with the agent that you're running because, you know, they understand that if you screw up, they're going to get killed in some cases. Mm-hmm. So it's a hell of a lot of responsibility when you're young, but I think it's the right thing to do. Um, and that's certainly what makes, you know, if you're 25 years old and you have that responsibility, it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I can imagine. What about winning an Oscar? I just want to know maybe some of your um, sure. some of your, some of your first times that you've you like I I learned acting because I went to acting school, but I always sort of had an idea of what it what it was. You know, you can kind yeah. of change your own emotional state. I mean, how good did you get at it? I know you talked about you know being an, being an actor in terms of um, you know keeping your composure and right. provide providing an inspiring an example. But are there any other instances where you've sort of manipulated your own emotional state for for sure. events? So I think that, you you know, so first of all, the principle has to do with, you know, just the fundamental notion, you never have a day off as a leader, that all eyes are going to be upon you. Right, now, you right. don't have to, you, you don't, you don't have to fake it. You know, in crisis situations, you know, you have to be authentic. I mean, I tell the story in the book about, you know, being under fire, Al Qaeda attacked an embassy, what I was uh, posted in, and, you know, grenades are, are hitting our roof, it's automatic weapons out fire, there's a gunfight going outside. I didn't get in front of the employees and said, hey, everything's fine, go have a cup of coffee. You know, that's the, but, but, but you're more authentic if you say, you know, you, you show a sense of cool and, you know, I say, okay, we're going to do a couple of things. You know, we're going to get the body armor out. We're going to break out the weapons. If, if the, the doors are breached, this is where, this is where you're going to fire into. But, but I didn't say everything's going to be great. I'm going to say, if we do a couple of things right, we're going to be okay. And we're on this together. And, you know, it's, a, it's still a pretty scary situation. So it's the idea of, of really being authentic. And, you know, I remember a time, one of the one of the awful times uh, in my career where, you know, we had lost an officer, someone was killed in an operation. And I had to get up in front of a station, there's 400 people, and I had to tell them that their colleague was killed. I, I don't even remember what I said, but I do remember that prior to that conversation, a senior leader called me and said, hey, Mark, this is going to be really tough. And by the way, and because immediately I had a tremendous amount of guilt. Um, I was in, in sadness and anger. Um, but this senior officer said to me, it's not about you. Everyone's going to be looking at you. And, and how the office responds and the things we have to do for days and weeks ahead is all contingent on what you say right now. And that was really important to me. So, but I, I didn't get up there and say, everything's going to be fine. You have to be authentic. This is an incredible tragedy. We're all going to grieve, you know? And, and so, and so there's, so I think it's really important uh, because, because a lot of times leaders uh, do things like get, you know, when I say too emotional, but you can't be angry. You can't get up there and, and you know, do things that, that is, are going to cause the, the unit, whoever you're leading um, to kind of go astray. Uh, and, and so, so ultimately it's a, it's a pretty simple principle, but I think it's, it's very important. You have to have this sense of authenticity. And then ultimately it's just, you know, it, it's the idea that all eyes are upon you all the time. Just never forget that because there's other things. So you can be a great leader, but here's the other thing too. I mean, you have to also, you know, it, it's also how you comport yourself in your, in other parts of your lives. So for example, if I'm overseas at a U.S. government facility and, and I'm in the leadership position, you know, uh, you know, what, are, what you know, I, I always had this old adage at an embassy at midnight, you know, the Marine House, the U.S. Marine Corps, you know, there's always there's always Marines posted overseas at U.S. embassies. Marine House parties are legendary. 
I had a principal that at midnight, I'm not, you know, I'll go there to, to hang out with folks. Is there from movies the that they show movies or something? Wasn't that like a it's thing? It's not movies. <laughs> right, right. It's, but it, these are be parties. Okay. There's, there, you know, there's certainly, you know, stuff that goes on there. And I left at midnight every time. There's no way, you know, a senior manager from the embassy should be there after midnight because the Marines are going to go do their stuff and other people and the single folks are going to go nuts. Um, but it's stuff like that. So, you know, I can't, I can't show up the next morning and be credible with people saying that, oh, you know, Mark was at three in the morning, you know, you know, doing stupid stuff on the dance floor. So it's just little stuff like that. All eyes are upon you. And you have to just take that responsibility and, and, and kind of run with it. And I think that's really important. I mean, do you find uh, this is probably more of a personal question as, as you know, throughout like a long career of 20, 26 years, you know, in some pretty intense areas. Do, do you find that you're just as emotionally accessible as you were when you were younger? Or do you, do you feel that's shifted at all? Oh, it definitely shifts. I mean, you know, just, just based on things that you've experienced, one has experienced. I mean, you know, by the end of my career, you know, my body is certainly breaking down. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, a couple of trips there, including a one-year deployment. Um, I spent time in Iraq for half a year. I went in with, you know, special operations forces when the city was falling. I was living in the mountains in Northern Iraq. Before that, so the things I've seen, and, and frankly, some of the things we've done, you know, you know, it's not normal. Um, and so, so you, you do get immune to things. I mean, you know, the, the first time I was shot at or I saw, you know, dead bodies or disemboweled bodies from a lot of death and destruction, even poverty. You know, I, I, you know, I served in the Middle East, so, uh, you know, saw poverty that you'd never experienced, you know, in the United States. Uh, by the end of your career, you get a little numb to that. Um, that's not necessarily a good thing, but that's just I think that's kind of kind of normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, the one thing though, that I think is positive is there's nothing like experience in the intelligence business. And so, you know, as a leader, and so, you know, at the last couple of jobs I had, there was really not anything that would happen during a, a typical day or even in a crisis situation that I hadn't seen before. So unfortunately things like, you know, officers who are, who are killed, uh, our own, um, you know, attacks on an embassy, terrorist attacks, a cranky ambassador. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it goes personnel situations where personnel people in my work unit did things that they had to get sent home for we had to be this but but so experience really matters so it's not that you're you're necessarily um immune to these things you just get you know you just kind of kind of you, you understand how to react to them but but look at, at the end of the day i mean i'm open about this and now what i talk now I and mean, I, I certainly suffered a traumatic brain injury um at the end of my career and, and you know and the counseling that i get now from those, you know, from social workers, from psychiatrists. My the favorite person I talked to is a Marine Corps chaplain, old, old, crusty dude, but he he gets it. We get each other. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I, I think that, you know, I've been through a lot and you kind of have to unpack that. There's no way people don't go through a career that, that I've gone through or many others. I'm no different than many of my colleagues or in, in the military, or, you know, special operations forces um, without having some residual effects. I mean, that just, it, it, there was too much that I did and and, and seen um, for that not to be kind of just, like part of who I am now. Yeah, but there's there's something else though. I just kind of looking at it big picture. I mean, you're someone who was, you know, in charge of clandestine mission from like I said Dublin to Vladivostok. I mean, right? You've you've been in the shadows. But when you get back, they I mean, they don't believe you. It almost seems like you weren't allowed to come in from the cold by them not not believing you like that. And and I sure. think you you've mentioned somewhat of a like a moral injury. I just want want to know that what that was like. Sure. No, that was, you know, so obviously, you know, you're, you're referring to what happened to me, you know, in, in Moscow in December 2017, where I was hit, where I was hit in the common, you know, wording for it now is Havana syndrome, but I was with what we think was a directed energy attack. But ultimately, I suffered a, tra- a TBI, traumatic brain injury. And that's, you know, I have, I go to now, you know, Walter Reed's, um, t- you know, National uh, Military, the Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, but ultimately, they have, a, you know, one of the world's leading TBI centers. So I've been diagnosed with this 
traumatic brain injury and it's certainly affected my life. I mean, I have a headache. I've had a headache for four years. Um, but when I came back and, you know, after, after this happened in Moscow, um, you're right. The agency didn't believe me. And I started really a long kind of nasty process in fighting with the agency's medical staff. Now it's not, I have to be, you know, I have to be honest about this because the operational side of the house believed me, but the medical staff didn't. And it, you know, even after I retired, I, I went public with this in an article, which caused kind of a big stink because the medical staff was being, you know, I, I think even, you know, unethical and immoral towards allowing me to get treatment that I needed. Now I finally did get the treatment based on the public pressure, but you're hundred percent right that this was a moral injury. Uh, so the physical injury was what happened to be the moral injury is that, you know, the institution uh, and really the medical staff, which I needed to be on my side and was not, I mean, you know, the operational side of the house believes something happened. That doesn't really matter. I need treatment. So, but there's a moral injury when I wasn't believed. Um, and, and during the treatment for this, it was really interesting at, at Walter Reed, which has treated, you know, a, you know, a huge number of U.S. military personnel, you know, after 20 years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, based on concussive effects. And so this is a little different, but it's still a traumatic brain injury. But so one of my colleagues painted this picture and it's a, it's a black canvas. And then they, and he threw some red paint on it and he calls it the gunshot. And what does that mean? Well, that was the, that was the wish, not only of, of, of myself and some others, but really traumatic brain injury victims that, you know, we wish we had been shot because that would have been a, a visible physical injury that you could then people would believe you and you could heal from. But with a TBI, it's much different. Um, and it's a really long and struggle. Now the agency is treating me much better now. You know, I'm getting this treatment. It was certainly a hard road. And, and, and one of the things that, you know, there's opportunity and, you know, bad things that happen all the time. So what have I done from this? Well, I'm really involved um, in kind of the wellness community now. And so, for example, I'm, I'm on the board, I'm paid, of course, but I'm on the board of a, a company called SoundOff, which is they've developed a, an app for your phone, which ultimately will allow for veterans in the military and special operations community to obtain anonymous mental health care support. And so that's critical. Again, it's, it's the idea of, of helping others after this 20 years of, of war. And so this kind of, you know, your life goes through stages. I love talking leadership now, um, but now I'm also really into kind of the, kind of the, the, the wellness community and helping others who have, you know, the Americans who have been battered by 20 years of war or things like what I went through with the direct and energy uh, stuff. And so, you know, it, that's kind of just, that's the person I am now. I'm only 51. I think I got some more gas left in the tank. I, I got a damn headache now, but there's some, there's still some stuff I can do. Oh, you still do have headaches? Every day. Never gone away. I mean, I, in fact, I just, it was, I you know three weeks ago, I had a super bad bout of them, piercing headaches. The vertigo came back. I'd go to the hospital. Um, doctors are still trying to find out, you know, what the hell happened, but you know, there's some things that I can do. And, uh, you know, certainly it's, it's kind of nutrition, uh, you know, sleep, some pharmaceutical things in terms of drugs. I haven't really responded well to them, but I'll tell you one thing, you know, you go to a place like Walter Reed and you sit around with a whole bunch of guys from, you know, special forces and Navy SEALs and some, some agency folks and everyone's sitting there doing deep breathing and meditation and yoga and, you know, there's, and so, you know, that this, this wellness stuff actually works yeah. um, and it's proven. And so, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the path I'm on now. I remember playing somebody that had did some research on TBI and brain injuries. I talked to some people at a clinic. This was back in the nineties. And I said, what, what are some of the symptoms? And they said, personality change. I just wondered if you'd experienced that at all. Are you more irritable? Do you, <clears throat> do you notice any, Look, you, so, don't have, so, you, you know, don't have to talk about that. If you don't no, no, no. So I'm very open about this, but that's actually part of the healing process. I mean, I'm a pretty tough dude. Like, so what is someone going to say? You know, so <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, yeah. you know, so, so ultimately, you know, for me, it's bandwidth. And so, you know, when, you know, I remember I was, I was joking that my medals and honors don't matter, but on one of the citations, it talked about, I had an indefatigable desire to succeed. Well, I, I can't do that anymore. 
So my day is I'm going to talk to you for an hour and a half today, for an hour, whatever we do. You know, I'm going to go meet a friend later on. Uh, but you know what? I can't do four of these. Right. Uh, you know, my head hurts. And I'm, I'm fine right now. But if I did another one of these afterwards, I'd be wiped out. And so for me, it's bandwidth. But bandwidth is important too, because I also have a family. So I want to be able to be there in the present for my wife. My two kids are in college, but they come home a lot. And so, you know, I don't want to be in that place where my head's killing me and I can't engage with them. And so I just have to be really cognizant of, you know, what I do, um, you know, speaking engagements I agree to. You know, I, mean, I just, you know, I'm going on a trip, you know, to Florida uh, in a little bit. I'm doing one speaking engagement. I had a whole bunch set up and I canceled those because I'm like, this is going to kill me. And by the way, it's not going to be good for, for anybody. Uh, you know, and so, so it's just the idea of, of understanding, you know, my limitations. And I'll tell you this story in, in, in the Walter Reed treatment program, we do something called art therapy. And I made this mask. It's a, it's, it's a mask of Superman in it is an ice pick sticking in my head, which signifies the headaches, but it's, it's also overlaid over the, the CIA seal that I kind of created over a piece of wood cracked in half. Um, and that there's so much to unpack there because that's the moral injury of the CIA, not believing me. And the, but the Superman part of the mask was that's what my kids, I thought, I thought, thought of me because, you know, they, they come home from school and like, they'd say, where's dad? And he's like, he's still at work or where's dad? He had to go on a trip. And I'd come back, you know, two months later. Right. Um, or dad's in Afghanistan or Iraq or something nutty. I mean, I always had to be at the tip of the spear. But, you know, the coolest thing, and I can't do that now, obviously, because I was injured. The coolest thing, though, is after, you know, uh, you know, after I, I painted the mask and I showed my kids this, you know, my daughter texted me and said, dad, don't worry, you're still you're still my Superman. Yeah. And of course, I got emotional and cried 100% after that. But, you know, it's just it's just being in there for your kids, you know, so I, I need to have that bandwidth where I'm still still kind of, you know, able to be a good husband, you know, good, good parent. Yeah. Um, and so I just got to limit, you know, the amount of stuff I do. I think you should use that painting of the Superman with the spike through his head on the CIA logo. That should be your Twitter icon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's probably round, right? It would just fit right in there. You know, that's a great idea. A couple of weeks ago, you spoke at the Belfort Center with, um, yep. you know, the journalist that kind of broke that story when it happened in Cuba back in 2016 or 17 or something. And, um, you, I, I don't I remember they were talking about it. What could possibly cause it? There was these, you know, passive cavity resonators that the Soviets have have used, you know, for ages. And um, but you said we know what it is. We just haven't done anything about it. And it feels like now we're actually doing things about it. There's policy changes, and there's, you know, most recently um, some legislation being passed. But I just wanted to know what it is. Well, we don't know what it is. There are some very good theories. Um, that it's, you know, a directed energy uh, uh, weapon or something, or a directed energy, you know, system. None of this is kind of very new technology. Uh, and and the, we have it. The United States has it. Has it. I mean, if you, if you actually take a look and you see even open source material that there are U.S. private companies that are um, selling this to the U.S. military to knock drones out of the sky. So it's not new. You can go on Amazon. You can go on YouTube. I mean, it's, it's and but ultimately, I think the 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 notion that this is kind of some wild phenomenon is is overblown a lot. You know, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, that you know this technology exists, and it's just going to be a matter of you know the intelligence community's investigation finding out, you know, who is doing this, uh, you know, where is you know where they're doing it, certainly why, um, and then of course, you know, uh, having them stop. But I don't think it's it's as far-fetched an idea as it was in the past. I think the scientific community is, you know, certainly, you know, more not not rallying around the notion that it's directed energy weapon, but certainly, you know, the, the idea that this is crickets or it's made up or everyone's psychosomatic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's that is has generally been dismissed, um, and that's a positive step for the victims too, because you know it really wasn't fun being, you know, being told that you're making it up. We knew we weren't. You know, I just I was at Walter Reed today. I mean, I spent three hours today. 
um, some more vestibular testing because I've had a bad bout of vertigo again. So we know it's real. We have a pretty good idea, you know, what it is. And then they just have to, uh, frankly, catch the people who are doing it. I know we don't really know, and you guys hate to speculate, but it is, um, I mean, is it a larger weapon? Is it yeah. um, in a vehicle bound or backpack? I mean, how? how well, I, you know, I think it is small. I think it's mobile. Sure. I mean, it's got, you know, if, if when you take a look at the attacks and, you know, and, and I certainly know a lot about them um, in talking to the victims. And so, you know, I'm, so I'm not read anymore at the agency. I certainly don't want to, you know, even hear about it. I talk to the media so much. It's better off. I don't know what the investigation is, is finding or, or how close they are or not. Although I get a sense that they're closer mm-hmm. um, to attribution, but, but ultimately, you know, it's gotta be mobile. It's gotta be small. Um, uh, and, uh, it's 2021. I mean, the idea that this has to be, you know, this giant, you know, 18 wheeler truck, you know, with such a thing is ludicrous. You know, we have, you know, there's micro drones, right? I mean, you know, so it's not it's not a Scud missile on a tell. The way I look at it is, I, I kind of reverse it. You know, reverse engineer it. You take a look at where the attacks are happening, how they're happening, how they're happening in people's residences, and it's pretty clear it's going this this device um, is going to be small. It's going to be mobile. I mean, when it was first happening, and people were, you know, talking about where it was happening, who it was happening to, and everyone was asking who's doing it, who's doing it, and then. I mean, in light of today, or I think it was just yesterday they revealed there's a dozen um, victims in um, Colombia, yeah. Colombia, the uh, diplomats who, who who've been targeted, their families. So, but the question that was asked um, back then was, well, who's to benefit from this? Right. So, so you know, that's a great question, and so and you have to look at it. You know, so how are we looking at this? Are we looking at this as you know, kind of the old school, you know, rational actor, real politique, or look at it in terms? And, and a lot of us think that the Russians are behind this. So. You know, look at it in terms of, you know, why the Russians do what they do now. And so so ultimately, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin gets up every morning and he just has one thing in his mind is how to screw the United States, even if they do things that ultimately are not beneficial towards Russia. But it's a it's you know, it's a zero sum game for him. He wants Russia to be seen as a great power, you know, actor, even though they're not it's the you know, economy the size of Italy. Uh, but ultimately, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, assassinating dissidents all over the world you know, at home. Uh, you know, abroad, you know, in, in fact, uh, launching, a, in essence, a chemical weapon attack um, in the UK, you know, Russian Air Force atrocities, you know, bombing civilian hospitals in Syria. I mean, the list goes on. And so, you know, Russia acts like a rogue state and sometimes rogue states don't act rationally. And if you go with the theory that I think a lot of us do that Putin wants to just cause simple chaos and dissension, um, then, you know, you can you can make a, a, you know, amongst many other things, you can make a strong case that um, that that you know the Russia you know Russia should be seen as a as, as a leading suspect in this. Um, you know, don't forget back in the 2016 elections, in the election interference, when they ran this, what is it to, to us is called a covert operation to them, active measures campaign. You know, there's still some question on uh, when they decided they wanted Donald Trump to win. Now, I think it's pretty clear that they did, but I think this was launched with the idea just to cause chaos. Um, and, and so, you know, when the Russians do things a little differently than we do. So, so if I was to devise an operation like this, crazily enough, I would have to get approval with an end game. Russian, the Russians don't think that way. Chaos is okay. And they can kind of tinker as they go along. And so I think, again, you know, maybe we have to probably think about it a little differently. Another thing that must have, must have kind of struck you, I mean, you're in Moscow, but there was this kind of rule, sort of Moscow rules, right? Where you don't trust somebody, you don't wear a, Red Sox cap for a dead drop, you know, whatever. But <laughs> there was like, but there had to be like unwritten rules of engagement. Like you don't, you know, rough up another agent or, you know, you just, you know, have somebody especially that has like right. dip- diplomatic. Um, well, so, so that, that is, that is sort of the case. So yes, traditionally intelligence officers, case officers from each side don't try to hurt each other. So that is accurate. 
Um, that's not to say that the people who we recruit, if we recruit an agent and it's caught by the other side, they're right. going to get executed. They're fair game. Um, but, but you're right. So generally, uh, uh, operations officers, case officers do not hurt each other. And that's why the whole, this whole thing with Havana syndrome across the globe is unusual, but make no mistake. Uh, you know, the Russians, you know, bathed our embassy in Moscow with kind of microwave, you know, uh, you know, you know, radiation technology over the years trying to kind of suck up, uh, information. And so, you know, there's been, you know, it's an incredible list of rare cancers that U.S. embassy officials who have served in Moscow, you know, have have suffered from for decades. And, you know, the, the use of spy dust, which was this kind of, you know, invisible material put on someone. So all this stuff is toxic. You know, so, so they did a lot of bad things over the years. But but in essence, you're correct in that they would not, you know, just as the U.S. would not do this to a Soviet uh, uh, KGB officer, the KGB would not do this to a U.S. officer trying to actually kill somebody really hurt them like this. And so, so that, that has, you know, changed the rules of the game a little bit. It appears, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, what is happening now. And, and, and frankly, for whichever adversary this is, maybe, you know, I, I think it's the Russians. I, you know, I think that's certainly the leading theory, but you know, if it's not, if it's the Chinese, the Iranians or some other actor, it, it kind of goes along that same thinking like, wow, this is getting personal because here's the other part, you know, which we didn't mention. It's not just the U.S. officials who are getting hit. It's their family members. Right. It's spouses. It's kids. It's young infants even who have been diagnosed with traumatic brain injuries, which is a lifelong injury they're going to have to deal with. So, so you know, to me, it's beyond the pale. Um, certainly goes in line with, with stuff we really shouldn't be doing to each other. Yeah, there's some disturbing similarities to cyber. I mean, it's unseen. You know, I mean, in your case, yep. there's definitely like biological consequences. You know, it's just pretty extreme for people. But um, well, you know, we could have a whole other we could have a whole other conversation on this. And what is this now? It's hybrid warfare. You know, it's, the, it's right. what we call gray zone operations. Yeah. So it's not a shooting war. Right. Um, but there's some really there's some serious damage being done. And, and you can make an argument that China and Russia already are are in a state of hybrid warfare against the United States. I don't think we are back in return. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about, you know, uh, you know, 19th and 20th century responses, and they're in the 21st century. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that, that, but, you know, I think this falls into the category of cyber, same thing. That's pretty much all I need. But I guess I also wanted to ask, is there, are there any, any developments or any ideas of, of ways that people can protect themselves? Uh, you know, I do, I've been, you know, I, I get contacted all the time by companies. Um, I think if you can, you know, again, it's a lot of this is on open source and you see, you see you know, companies making bids, you know, for, to the United States government for some type of, um, you know, portable detector. Um, so, because the whole point on this, and one of the things that, you know, while this has been a really difficult journey for me talking about it in public is, you know, I, I keep meeting victims who say that because I've been such an advocate on this, that they have gotten what we call gotten off the X. It's an old term in counterterrorism, sure. uh, you know, and so, so obviously if you're, if you're being attacked, you have to leave. If someone's shooting at you, you know, you move. And, but it would be the same thing with this is if you feel something happening to you, it's get off the X because when I've talked to the doctors, you know, I go to Walter Reed's National Intrepid Center for Excellence. That's their traumatic brain injury program. I've been there since January. I was there for a full month, you know, uh, and then and I go quite frequently now. But they say that, you know, the, the amount of exposure to this is what the, the determines the severity of your injury. Um, and so, you know, so getting off the X is important, which is why, you know, coming up with some type of, of portable detector uh, is critical. I did. I saw and I can't remember it now, but, I, you know, I, I remember I, see, I saw a bid. You know, in terms of for, you know, for U.S. military, everything's public. Everything's you know public knowledge, and and it was it was companies trying to trying to build and deploy kind of portable detectors for JSOC. Um, seems that's a pretty smart idea. Yeah, I think it's important that you're a voice for this. Yeah, I never thought about the off the X that those three, those one, two or three seconds where you think, oh, wait, am I being shot at? Is somebody shooting? Is this really happening? Yeah, well, right now? yeah. And, and people have told me that you know my my public advocacy and 
you know, including the original article that, you know, that came out in GQ by Julia Yaffe, who wrote this, you know, incredible article, because I chose her to actually tell my story. But they said that that they thought of that when it was happening, they felt something strange. And they, and they and they moved. And, and later on, the doctor said, you know, that, that those several seconds probably saved you from, you know, uh, having a more severe in- injury like I had or like some of the other. Certainly the, the Havana victims are are the ones who, are, you know, have been affected the most. And I think you mentioned this before, but what were those initial ones? You said there was a headache. So it was ver- for me, it was vertigo. It was vertigo, tinnitus ringing in my ears and then a big, a stunning headache. But it was the vertigo was the was the was the clear sign. Well, that's pretty much that's pretty much it. Do you have anything else you want to add? I really, like I said, I really like the book. You know, I did want to ask you twelve, um, the twelve, the dirty dozen questions. Okay, what's that? All right. Okay, Alexander the Great or Lawrence of Arabia? Lawrence of Arabia. The kite runner or run Lola run? Kite runner. State prison or state fair? State fair. Who <laughs> <laughs> you almost said state prison? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Low hanging fruit or high value target? High value target. Come on, that's easy. All right. Crunchy or smooth? Crunchy. Nationals or expos? Ooh, it's kind of the same. Nationals. You're right. It's not really a choice. That was a trick question. We'll go with nationals. Uh Kofor Black or Black Widow? Kofor Black. <laughs> SDR or STD? SDR for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it depends, I suppose. Yeah. Uh Grease Files or Stasi Files? Ooh. Stasi Files. Okay. Get a hand with hands on those. Some of these I'm just kind of winging. I don't really know. Like blue, blue badge or green badge? Blue badge. Blue badge. I don't even know what that is. Rollback or blowback? Rollback. Rollback. Dead drop or live drop? Dead drop. Dead drop. You're a dead drop guy. All right. I'll send this to my analysts and we'll uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll tell you your next assignment. I love <laughs> we'll that. We'll go from there. So anyway, yeah. Anything else? Anything I could do for you? No, it's great. This is this is fun. I mean, you know, I'd love coming on, you know, different shows. And this is this is actually what a, this is actually, you know, uh, uh, you know, not really a set of questions I'm used to. So it's a lot. It's fun and dynamic. I really like that. I've done, you know, uh, probably a hundred podcasts, but this is awesome. I, so I really I, I enjoyed kind of the, this kind of back and forth. It's more of a conversation. That was my chat with Mark Polymeropoulos. Thank you very much, Mark, for being on the show. His book is Clarity in Crisis: Leadership Lessons from the CIA. It's available wherever you get your books. And there's more information in the show notes about Mark. You can find him on Twitter at Polymer, And also some more information about his organization, SoundOff, which seeks to give anonymous therapy to special operations soldiers who are wounded like himself, also with uh, traumatic brain injury. Um, if you want to pitch into the show, we're getting into season three. This is about the fourth episode. Now I have a Patreon. You can be an operative or a case officer for 5 or $10 a month. Or if you don't want to do that, maybe a one-time payment, a on PayPal. Um, information and links will be in the show notes as well. Uh, if you can't pitch in, then that's fine. Just keep listening.